So John chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 26. And uh, one of the songs that we've been singing a bunch at Union Chapel, one of one of the ones that Kathy really enjoys, uh, I just didn't think it was going to fit for trying to sing it on Zoom together, is uh, Is He Worthy? And uh, the chorus, of course, is he worthy? Is he worthy? And the and the the the, the whole response, the whole point is that he is worthy, and uh, just a beautiful chorus and a, and a beautiful, um, just a beautiful truth that Jesus Jesus Christ is worthy. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in John chapter twelve, verse one to verse twenty six, is that Jesus Christ is worthy. And we're going to see as we read through this uh, this passage together. Just what he's worthy of. He's, he's worthy of a number of things here in this passage of scripture. And uh, the, the real question that is going to be for each of us then is, do I see Jesus as worthy in that way? Or are I, am I devaluing Jesus? Am I seeing him as the exalted one that we've just sang about? Are we able to truly say knowing him is the greatest thing, that he is our joy, that he's our all? Uh, he, is, he is the best thing that we can know, the best person um, the, the best one we can give our lives to and surrender our all to, to trust and believe in and worship. Um, and, and many Christians, we've come to the point where we've acknowledged Jesus Christ as our savior. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, we know that you're God. We know that you love us. We do love you. But there's some of us and, 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 and all of us, actually, there's a certain, there are things that we're not yet giving over to Jesus. There are aspects of our life that we're kind of saying, you're not yet worthy of taking this um, and he is worthy of it, but our, of course, our sinful hearts are reluctant to give it. And uh, if you're not a Christian, of course, then what you're saying is that Jesus isn't worthy of you, worthy of your faith, worthy of trusting, uh, worthy of giving your life to. And uh, so hopefully this is just a challenge and encouragement. And for, for those of you who are giving all to Jesus and seeing him as worthy in every aspect of your life, I hope that this just continues to encourage you to see that as a reality uh, as well. So we're just going to go through this passage together and, and see the things that Jesus Christ is worthy of. And uh, the first, well, so first of all, we see that Jesus is, was up in, if you remember from the last chapter, he went up to Ephraim because they just plotted his death. Um, the, the, the religious leaders have gathered together, the, the Sanhedrin have met secret emergency council to plot the death of Jesus Christ. The high priest Caiaphas has decided that he needs to die for the whole nation. And John, the author is like, not just for the whole nation, but for the whole world and, uh, that he's a false prophet. So this has been predicted. Jesus now leaves because his hour has not yet come. So he leaves to go to Ephraim and now we have him in first one of chapter 12 coming back into Bethany again. So these men are plotting his death. He's now moving back two miles from Jerusalem. So again, remember, it's kind of like from, from Union Chapel to the Bath Abbey. That's how far it is. So this is, this is endangering his life to walk back into Bethany. And as we know, by the end of this reading together, he's now in uh, Jerusalem in the place where people are plotting his death. So the first thing we see in verse 1 to verse 8 is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our devotion. And now what we see first of all then is in verse 1 to 3, we see people valuing Jesus. It says that, that Jesus is now back in Bethany again and uh, he's at dinner. And look what it says in verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. So they've invited him to come. They can't wait for him to come back and, and have this meal laid out before him as a, as a thanksgiving. 
uh, for what he's just done. He's just risen their dead brother, uh, so he's alive again. They're so grateful for that. They're so thankful for that. So they invite Jesus, and they put on all the works. The lamb kebabs are roasting, and they can't wait to have him and to celebrate him and to honor him and to, to, to value him. And uh, so he's back in Bethany. He's eating with this family that he loves. And uh, there's a dead guy eating with him who's, who's back to life again. And, and the three of them, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, are doing all they can in this scenario to just, just full of love and full of devotion to honor Jesus. And it's not a begrudging thing. It's something, I mean, you imagine like your brother's dead. He's back to life again. And now you get to have the person who did that back in your home again. That is a beautiful time to celebrate. Um, if, if, if my eyes are, are all going wrong and, uh, and something's really happening, I, I've got serious problems and Kwasi comes and fixes my eyes. Uh, I know it's not quite as miraculous, but still a pretty uh, life-changing and he fixes my eyes so I'm able to see perfectly again after the threat of not. And uh, the next time I have Kwasi in my home, it won't be like, uh, oh man, we have to have the Addisons again. It'll be, man, like, please come. Like, what can we do? Like, you've, you've, you've rescued my sight. And so these people, they, they can't wait to do this. They're valuing Jesus. They're full of love and devotion uh, for all that he's done. And Mary's worshiping him in a certain way. And Martha's worshiping him in a certain way. They're both doing it differently, but they're both doing what they can with their certain gifts and with their possessions to worship Jesus. Martha is, uh, is serving. The t- that's what she loves to do. That's her great desire. That's her gifting. And so she's doing it again, but this time from a much better perspective. And then we have Mary in verse three, uh, pouring out this uh, expensive perfume, pure nard, onto the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, this would have been about a can of cook full of expensive oil. It says here that it's uh, perhaps in your translation about 300 denarii. In other translations, it gives you, it tells you what that means, a, a year's salary. Can you imagine a, a year's salary being given over and just in that one moment to be smacked, to be put upon the feet of Jesus Christ and to wipe his, his feet with it? A whole year uh, and I mean, it's like, it's a day's labor. So if we put that to minimum wage today, it's like 19,500 pounds or something. So it's like 20,000 pounds worth is being poured upon the feet of Jesus Christ. And then she's using her hair to wipe his feet at this moment. Where on earth do these people get this expensive stuff from? Some people believe it's a, a family heirloom that would have been used a tiny little bit each time. So every time they had people in their home or every time they had a special event, they would use a tiny little bit of this pure nard just to make the house smell nice or to make their clothes smell good that day. So you're, you're, don't, don't waste this. You have to use it drop by drop. It's so precious. It's so expensive. And yet in this one moment, she just pours it all upon the feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, an extravagant moment uh, of worship. Now, in, in the Bible, a woman's hair is her glory, okay? So it says in 1 Corinthians 11 that the hair of the woman is her glory. And here's this woman using the most, her, her glory, the most glorious part of her, her hair, to wipe the feet of Jesus. The feet back then were the worst part of the body, the dirtiest part, the part that you're walking on, the dust. And uh, John the Baptist, of course, says earlier on in this gospel, I'm not even worthy to to untie his shoelaces. And so, so the worst part of the, of the body is the foot. The best part of the woman's body, according to the Bible, is her hair, her glory. And here's the woman using her best part, her glory, to wipe the least part 
of Jesus. And what she what she's essentially saying is my best part is is only fit for worshiping your least part. That's all I can do is worship the least part of you with the best part of me. And again, she's not doing this begrudgingly. This is honor. This is value. This is highly esteeming Jesus in the way that he deserves. He is exalted, forever exalted. And that's what she's doing to him here. And what she's saying at this moment is, Jesus, you are worthy of the most precious possession that we own. And you're worthy of my glory being given over to you. And I love it. It says here at the end of verse three, the whole house was filled with the fragrance and uh, her private devotion, her private love, her private valuing of Jesus became a, a thing that filled the whole room and blessed others as well. And John, the author of this gospel was in that room and he was like, you should have smelled that room. It was beautiful. And I got to experience someone value in Jesus and it blessed me as well. And friends, if we learn to value Jesus like this, to give him the worth that he's worthy of, to honor him in the way that he ought to be honored, it won't just bless him, which it does here, but it will bless those in your life as well. It'll fill the room with the fragrance of worship. And I hear John writing years and years later, is remembering that moment. And, and I mean, like 60 years later, he's writing this and he's saying, man, you should have smelled that room that day that Mary poured uh, on the feet of Jesus Christ. But then we get to the next little section of this part where someone is devaluing Jesus in verse four to six. And here we have Judas Iscariot and he's basically saying, what on earth, what a waste this is. What a waste of money. Judas, the betrayer and the thief questions this. Judas is essentially saying this. Jesus is not worth that much. That's what Judas is saying in that moment. Jesus is not worth that much. What a waste of money to pour upon the feet of the Messiah. Jesus is not worth that much. And in fact, we're going to, we're going to know that, that Judas is going to sell him for a lot less than what this thing's worth. Now, Ju- Ju- Jesus knows that Judas doesn't love the poor. And uh, instead, Judas has the love of money in his heart. And as we know, the love of money will kill you and will rip away your heart from Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Judas's heart, instead of valuing Jesus, he values money and his heart is ripped away from Jesus. And he's later going to betray him for money uh, again. So here's a man devaluing Jesus um, and, and by saying Jesus isn't worth a, a, a year's salary. He's not worth the glory of the woman. What a waste of money. And then we get to true value in verse 7 to verse 8 where Jesus explains um the 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 what what he sees in this moment as God and as fully man. And he says leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this for the day of my burial. It says this, it doesn't say perfume in the in the in the in the actual text that but people fill that in to make it helpful for you there. And so the idea here is this, this is for his burial. Now, this, Mary doesn't know this yet. This is something that's, again, it's a shock to the disciples. And Jesus is trying to tell them like three times in the Gospels, although not yet here in John, that I'm going to die. By this point, they've been told this a number of times, but they, they still don't grasp this whole concept. So Mary doesn't really know this whole idea. And he's just said, oh yeah, I'm going to be buried. Uh, and it's a bit of this moment of like, moving on, what was that? And, um, but he's now revealing this, that this is for my burial. Now it could mean that she's keeping the, the oil for the burial, this oil for joyful devotion to him. Or what, what could also be suggesting is this in a few days time, 
Jesus is going to be in the tomb dead. And Mary is going to be wondering, was I, was I right to worship this man? Was I right to value him? Was I right to honor? Is he truly the Messiah? And she'll go back in her mind a few days previously to where she uh, wiped the feet of Jesus with this stuff. And why did she do that? She did that because he is the resurrection and the life who resurrected her, her brother. So when she's at that tomb a little bit later on, she's going to remember that moment where she remember where she worshiped Jesus for being the resurrection and the life. And she'll have hope in that moment of seeming darkness. Uh, so that's a potential idea of what this means here. Then Jesus says the poor are always here. And he's basically saying to Judas, if you really care for them, then serve them from this day onwards. Serve them. Uh, but you have me here for just a small amount of time. And what Jesus is saying is this. I'm not always going to be here like this in the flesh. I'm only going to be here for a few more days in the flesh, actually. Uh, and so so what she's doing is is um, she doesn't have much time to do this left. And she wants to do that now. Leave her alone uh, to worship me. So my question for us here today on Zoom is Union Chapel is this. Uh, where are you in this scenario? Uh, are you like Mary, valuing Jesus, giving him the worth that he's worthy of, honoring him, joyfully pouring out whatever is precious to you onto him, the more precious one? Some of us, we, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't even sing uh, with true heart's desire to him, never mind pour out a year's worth of salary onto his feet. Uh, but he's worthy of these things, friends. So let's give him what he's worthy of. Let's highly esteem him with full of joy for all that he's done for us. Or are we like Judas, devaluing Jesus, giving him far less worth than he's worthy of, and therefore dishonoring him, counting that giving over to Jesus as wasteful? What is precious to you? What are your prized possessions? Is Jesus worthy of those things? in your estimation. So that's verse one to verse eight. Jesus is worthy of our devotion. The second thing we see is that Jesus is worthy of our faith in verse nine to verse 11. John here in verse one to verse eight has given us a really intimate scene into a private moment of devotion and worship to Jesus in a small group of believers. Now in verse nine to 11, he zooms back out again to show us what's going on on the outside. Oh yeah, that's right. People are plotting Jesus' death. And so verse 9 to 11 serves to bring us back out into the reality of what's happening outside of the walls of this little home into the village of Bethany. And it says here in, in verse 9 to 11 that people are flocking towards him. Uh, they're moving away from the religious leaders and they're following Jesus instead. And they're doing that because of Lazarus' resurrection. This man made a blind guy see and a dead man walk. He is the one that's worthy of following him. And uh, others, while, meanwhile, however, others are still plotting his death. And they're now plotting the death of Lazarus, which is very sinister work, um, as you can imagine. The, the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus who they could accuse of Sabbath breaking and blasphemy, okay? So the, the accusation on Jesus is he's broken the Sabbath twice, so he can be stoned to death for that. And he's now committing blasphemy by saying that he's equal with God, so he can die for that too. So they, they kind of have things that they can sort of kill Jesus for. But what are they able to kill Lazarus for? For dying and coming back to life again? <laughs> like... 
we're going to kill you for that. Like that's how sinister these men are. That's how broken and that's the heart of darkness in these men is not, uh, man, maybe this is true, but we're going to have to kill the guy who came back to life again. That's his great crime, dying and being risen. He couldn't even help it. He didn't even, he didn't even ask for it to happen, but he's going to die uh, because of this. And I bet Lazarus wasn't too afraid since he's like, yeah, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt a few days ago. What can you do to me now? I don't fear the one who can break, kill the body, but the one who has both body and soul. And so I'm sure he was just like, sure, do it, whatever. Um, but it's crazy, these men who are wanting to do this, they might as well, as at the same time, they might as well go break the legs of the man who can walk again. Go back into Jerusalem and break his legs, because there's the miracle there. You might as well go pluck out the eyes of the man who can go see again, because that's happening there in Jerusalem. If you're going to go in now and try and snuff out the life of the man who lives again through Jesus. But here's the thing. Everyone is making a decision about Jesus in this chapter. Mary and Judas are saying that Jesus is worthy of value or not worthy of value. And the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, some are saying he's worthy of following and some are saying he's worthy of death. The miracle of raising Lazarus has been the biggest demonstration that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So again, I ask the question, who are you in this short story, verse 9 to verse 11? Are you the person who, knowing who Jesus is, And knowing what he's able to do moves away from empty religion to believe and follow him and give him your faith. Or are you the bystanding religious who look at these people as fanatics, gone away over to a mere man, a deceiver of the people? Are you trusting like they were in your own works and your own devotion to save you? Are you blocking out the powerful evidence that Jesus is God risen from the dead with a hateful heart like they were. You have to decide, verse 9 to verse 11, which one you are. The third thing we see in verse 12 to verse 19 is that Jesus is worthy of our worship. And this is the great moment of the, the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming back into the city of Jerusalem now, where the leaders have plotted and schemed his arrest and his death. And it says in verse 13 that the people took their palm branches, laid it out at the feet of Jesus and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, a lot of people ask the question, why why was it palm branches? Uh, The first reason being that they were readily available (laughs) at the time. Uh, So it's very simple. Whatever we can get our hands on to worship Jesus, let's get that. And let's throw in another other gospels say it was it was clothing as well. Uh, but whatever we can get our hands on, let's worship Jesus with, with these things. But there's also some other significant things here that are happening potentially with the idea of the palm trees. And I'd just like to show you that uh, for, for a few moments. Uh, in the first place, <clears throat> as we see the people worshiping, in the first place, Jericho is known as the city of palms. And uh, Jericho was the first city that Israel took when they entered into the land of Canaan. And uh, these people, of course, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe he's coming as the righteous Messiah, the King of David, the Son of David, who's going to come back and, and, and conquer the land of Israel against the enemies of his people. So potentially they're saying that Jesus is our conqueror. He's coming back to take the land uh, from the people. So there's a, a potential there. Uh, also in Psalm 92 verse 12, it says, the righteous flourish like a palm tree. 
And uh, they're essentially saying, you are the righteous king that's been promised to us by the prophets. And also in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 29, the, the temple of Solomon was decorated uh, throughout with palm trees, all across it with, with palm trees. And uh, it could be that they're saying also, you as the Messiah are the true one who will restore the true temple worship of God. So there's just some ideas. Or it could just be that palm trees were ready, readily available uh, in Jerusalem uh, at the time. But they, they cry out, uh, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that this comes from Psalm 108, verse 25 to verse 26, which we just read uh, earlier on this morning. And uh, they say, it says in Psalm 118, save now, which is what Hosanna means. Hosanna, save us. Save now, I pray, O Lord, and then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house uh, of the Lord. <clears throat> but this psalm also talks about a few other things. Uh, it says in verse 19 to verse 20, Open to me the gates of righteous, and I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous one shall enter. And uh, that's Jesus entering into then, potentially the, the city of Jerusalem, into the gates. Um, and then obviously at, at the crucifixion and resurrection into uh, the presence of God. In verse 22 to verse 24, we have this famous uh, verse that's quoted in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This, is, this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day, this day of what Jesus is accomplishing is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So as these people are shouting out, blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have that whole psalm in their mind. And so does Jesus. Jesus has that whole psalm in their mind, his mind as well. And he knows what this day will be. He knows it will be the day and the few days coming that the cornerstone will be rejected and then will be exalted again. He knows exactly what's happening in Psalm 118. Now, Jesus responds to this claim in verse 12 to 13. They're saying that he's the blessed one. They're saying that he's the king of Israel. And what does Jesus do? Does, Jesus doesn't say, shh, quiet now. Uh, don't be saying that. We're going to get in trouble with the Romans. Or hold on a second. That's not who I am. What Jesus does is he fulfills prophecy to show them you're right in saying what you're saying at this moment. And verse 14 to verse 16 tells us that Jesus went and he found a young donkey <clears throat> and he went and sat upon it and rode it into uh, Jerusalem. And he's quoting and that, that, that whole thing that he's doing is coming from Zechariah chapter 9 and, and verse 9. Where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. He's having salvation. He has Hosanna with him as he comes. So he's saying this, you're right to say that I am the Messiah King, but I'm not coming with military power. I'm coming, as this verse says, in meekness and humility uh, to you. They're not going to get this fully, but Jesus is making it known that this is what he's coming to do. Now the witnesses share in verse 17 to verse 19. Uh, the witnesses of the Lazarus miracle are coming with him. They're coming with him from Bethany into uh, Jerusalem. And they're just telling everybody what's been going on. Man, this guy here, he really is the king of Israel. He, he made a blind guy see. But tell you what, there's a guy two miles up the road there who was dead. He was in the tomb for four days. And now he's alive again. And Jesus had a meal with him just yesterday. Like this, this is the Messiah. This is the king of Israel. 
and, uh, and everyone is believing their testimony. It says that they were telling people, and it says in these verses that everyone was believing, and, and people were coming out then to meet Jesus because of this. And, and friends, that's essentially what witnessing is. When people talk about witnessing, uh, to be a witness simply means to testify about what Jesus Christ has done. And so when, I'm, when we're witnessing, when we're sharing, all we're doing is we're sharing the fact uh, that Jesus has saved us. And we're, we're testifying, we're bearing witness of those things so that other people will believe. But we get to verse 19 and it says, The Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They're looking around in furious dismay, uh, feeling that their plotting and scheming has been in vain. So again, the question asked for us this morning, which one are you uh, in the story? Are you the people that are joyful that the Messiah has come, laying down whatever you can to him as a sign of honor and worship? Um, Are you the person who is gladly witnessing of what Jesus Christ has done in your life through his grace and power, telling others of Jesus and what he's done? Or the onlooker, furious that Jesus is getting such attention? Jesus Christ uh, is worthy of our worship. The next thing we see, we're, we're coming to the close of the, we're going to do two more. The, the next thing we see is Jesus is worthy of the nations in verse 20 to verse 22. And uh, as this feast is, is underway, or it's begin, it's it's coming, it's not happening yet, the Passover feast, it's it's coming and people are coming and, and there's now Greeks who are in Jerusalem for this feast as well. Uh, Greeks who are, who are what they call God-fearers. So they're, they, they worship the, the God of Israel, although they haven't been circumcised and they haven't come into Judaism fully. But there's Greeks who have come to be part of this festival event. And they come and they ask this question, can we, or they come to Philip, can we come and see Jesus? We would see Jesus. And so it's true what the Pharisees say. The Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him. And then the next few verses say, yeah, it's right, actually. The Greeks are coming and they want to see Jesus as well. And so John here is showing uh, that they're right, that, that this, the whole world's going to go to Jesus. So the Greeks come to Philip um, and say, we would see Jesus. And he and Andrew are, are both from the same area up in Galilee. And it's perhaps they're even from the same town as these Greeks. So they, they might recognize him and, and sort of have that connection. And it's not what you know, but who you know. And can you get us in to see, to see Jesus? And this is lovely because at the start of the Gospel of John, the Samaritans come running out to him, running out of their city up the hill to see Jesus. And in that same chapter, Romans, John chapter 4, uh, the, the official has come 20 miles to see Jesus. And now here towards the end, before Jesus' crucifixion, the Greeks are now asking to see him. The Samaritans, the Romans, and the Greeks are all coming to see Jesus while the Jewish leaders are despising him. It's uh, it's quite a, it's an irony here uh, that's taking place. So you got the Samaritans, the despised half, you got the Roman people, and you got the Greeks coming to see Jesus. But Jesus responds to all of this as these people come to worship him, as the Jews come to celebrate him, as people are laying down palm trees. This is a beautiful moment, and Jesus gives us a real insight into his heart and into the true faith in this last one that we're going to look at uh, this morning, where we look at verse 23 to verse 26, and we see that Jesus is worthy of our lives. So verse 23 to 26, Jesus is worthy of our lives. So, so all of this is happening. The crowds are delighted and enthusiastic. 
The nations have come and they too want to see the Messiah of the Jews, just like the Old Testament says. And the disciples are, are surely quite delighted about this. The disciples are the popular ones again. They've been following Jesus. In John 6, everyone rejected Jesus. And they're, they're part of this loser group of people. They're, he's rejected, so we're rejected with them. And in John chapter 11, let's just go die with him then. And it's, it's a little bit like, this is all terrible. Now they're walking in Jerusalem. Everyone's celebrating Jesus. And they're all coming to them like, man, can you get us close to Jesus? And so they're the popular ones again. And they're quite excited about everything. And they're thinking, this is the moment Jesus is going to walk right into Jerusalem. He's going to come into the temple. He's going to get on his throne in some, somewhere in Jerusalem. And it's going to be glorious. And we're going to be part of all of this and Jesus brings reality into the whole scenario and he says this in verse 23 the hour has come see none of them understand what's going to happen next none of them not even the disciples have fully come to understand that the hour is not his hour of being recognized by all these people and celebrated by all these people this hour that is coming is his public humiliation and execution that will lead to his exaltation in just a few days. The hour is his cross. The hour is his torture. The hour is the public shame. And, uh, and what he says here in this moment is the hour has come. So listen to these words of Jesus as he effectively comments on all of what's happening around him here in verse 23 to 26. First of all, he tells us about his own glory in verse 23 to 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So again, Jesus says the hour has come. Three times up until this point in John's gospel, it's been said that Jesus' hour has not come. But now it has the hour of him to be glorified. And uh, I'm sure that all those that heard him and believed in him were excited at that moment when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they're all like, yes, it has. This is a wonderful day. The palm trees, and it's such a beautiful day. The hour has truly come, Jesus. And they believe that he means that he's going to be adored and honored here in Jerusalem. And on that very day, be crowned as the king uh, of Israel. But that's not what Jesus means, because then he tells us what he means in verse 24. Jesus gives us a little teaching. A seed is buried. It dies. It's ripped apart and then comes to life again. And then there's fruit. So a seed has to die, then be ripped apart. Life will come through that and then fruit will come through that as well. And Jesus is saying that will be my glory. So too it will happen to me. Jesus will be ripped apart through the torture of a a barracks of men whipping him and placing a crown of thorns upon his head. And then he'll be murdered. Then he'll be planted in the tomb. But then he'll rise again to a new life. And the fruit that he produces will be those coming to him and glorifying him and being saved through him. That's his glory. That's his exaltation. And so the crown of thorns will lead to his glory. The cross will lead to his throne. Uh, But they don't understand these things. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 25 to verse 26. As he calls on those around him who truly want to be his followers to come and die like he dies. 
He says in verse 25 to 26, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So we look now at his people's honor. Basically, Jesus is saying this, his truth, verse 24, that he has to die in order to to be glorified. Jesus is saying that also applies to us, his followers. Jesus is saying this, come die in me. Come die with me. Come die for me to the things of this world and no eternal life. Die to yourself and don't just live for this world. Jewish followers, it's not about the physical nation of Israel. It's not about you being honored amongst the nations. It's not about getting rid of the Romans. Greeks, it's not about seeing me as some great physical man and having the prestige of telling your friends that you saw the Jewish king. Disciples, it's not about being popular and loved by this crowd of people who are going to turn on me in just a few days. You all need to die to all of that. Come believe in me. Come follow me and have eternal life. And Jesus says in verse 26 to follow him. And the question is, where does he want us to follow him to? Well, where's he going in a few days? He's going to Calvary. He's going to die. And Jesus is calling us here to die to ourselves and die for God as he does. Now, where will Jesus be after Calvary? Because he says, where I am, my servants will be if they follow me to where I'm going. Where will he be after Calvary? Glory. And my servants will be with me in glory because I'll be the one who gladly takes him there. And as he sought to honor me, so my father and I will delight to honor him. Look at verse 26. My father will honor the one who serves me. And so Jesus in John 5 says, if you want to honor the father, you have to honor the son. And uh, so those who have sought to honor the son will one day experience the father honoring them with the son together. And Jesus is saying here this, no sacrifice and no labor for Jesus is in vain. Die and you'll have a fruitful life. Die and you'll live. Die and you'll be with him in glory. Die and you'll be honored by the father. So again, which one are you this morning? Are you going to die to the things of this world, your reputation, your pleasures, your idea of comfort, your idea of identity and purpose, your fear of man, your love of wealth and power, and come trust in Jesus and know eternal life, glory and honor? Or will you allow the things of this world and your love for the things of this world to lure you away from Jesus? Uh, Augustine, I'm reading about the life of Augustine at the moment. And one of the great things that stopped Augustine from coming to trust in Jesus was his love for sexual sin. And Jesus would say, uh, come, uh, don't love it anymore and love me instead and find that I'm the one who truly satisfies. For many, it's the love for the pursuit of wealth. And Jesus would have us pursue him and have eternal riches instead. For, for others, it's a love of reputation. And Jesus would have us mocked and ridiculed so that one day we'll be honored by the Father in the end. Perhaps it's a love for family and friends. And Jesus would have them disown us so that we would belong to him instead. Whatever it is in your life that you're saying, I love this, Jesus would have you give it over to him 
and know uh, true satisfaction, true joy, true riches instead. So the, the question for us to ask is this, uh, do you want the world or do you want Jesus? Do you want the world or do you want the world to come? And Jesus here in this little section is worthy of your life. He truly is worthy. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high and I will praise him. So Jesus in this little uh, passage of scripture, he's worthy of your devotion. Uh, even if it is extravagant in the eyes of others, he's worthy of your faith to follow him and believe on him. He's worthy of your worship to call upon him, to praise him, to sing to him, to honor him as the king, as the one who's come to save. He's worthy of the nations. All the nations will stream to Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And if you're not a Christian, he's worthy of you giving him your life. And if you are one, he's worthy of following and serving even to the loss of the things of this world as well. He is exalted and he is worthy. Amen. Well, we're going, we're going to uh, sing once again uh, as a response to, to what we've been looking at uh, this morning.